1: Welcome to Spark London. We tell true stories, we tell them live, and we tell them all across London. And tonight's theme, the theme of the evening, is union, true stories of union. So when we think of union, we might think of the idea of marriage, I guess. We might hear some marriage stuff tonight. We might think of trade unions. We might think of school reunions, and I guess tonight we are all joined together in a, in union together to hear these stories. So we are ourselves a union. So we're going to kind of get on with the show. Um, and our first storyteller uh, is from somebody who's been telling stories at Spark since we pretty much began. Uh, we've been going seven years. So she was she was one of our first storytellers, I believe. Put your hands together, everyone, for Catherine Seamark. <laughs>
0: When I was 13, on the eve of a dreaded first day at a new school, I was uh, mercifully struck down with glandular fever, Um, a really raw sore throat. I had glands on the side of my neck like sort of painful marbles. And uh, I didn't, didn't make it into school at all that first term, not at all. And I actually thought that fate had perhaps intervened on my behalf, and maybe, just maybe, I would never have to go wrong. Um, and spring term, first day of spring term, saw me at school and uh, I was awkward um, new uniform, very stiff and unworn and I realised that I was in a group of people who'd formed close-knit friendships already, they were very bonded and I'd got it very wrong, I realised that in the first hour um, my, I was wearing my skirt, just like it came wrong, I should have taken it up and taken it in Um, Again, I was wearing my tie, quite normally, sort of middle road with that. No. I had two choices. I could have either gone for the very long skinny, with a long flappy tail, or very short and fat. Um, My school bag was a sort of green canvas. No. Two obvious choices, either the blue canvas or the yellow canvas from Millets. Um, It was painfully obvious I had messed up, and it wasn't going to be under the radar, because of course I was the newbie amongst a group that were very cool and customised their uniforms. And I went home very despondent and really thought hard about how I could contract chicken pox. End of the second day, I, I sort of resigned myself and I thought, well, I might as well sort of get on board with this and see uh, if I can find myself a niche. And music proved to be my lifeline. Um, I joined everything. I joined choir, then I joined junior orchestra, And I then graduated to um, hanging out on Friday night at Maidstone Youth Music Society, um, which sort of was very exciting. It was heady times. Um, We would plough our way painfully through Jesus Christ Superstar. And then in break times, we'd swap um, those little pink shrimps and uh, sherbet lemons and see if we could go out the back and smoke Marlboro Lights behind the back of the bins. Um, There was definitely a culture, and I really belonged. Um, and, And the official unofficial badge of membership was um, a Musician Union badge. It was a sort of like a sticker that you stuck on your instrument case. Big, round and yellow with bold words. Musicians Union. Keep music live. And uh, I like that because it had a sort of whiff of decadence. It sort of made you think of gigs and smoky jazz clubs. Um, and I sort of I graduated to wearing a very long black coat from Oxfam and sort of touting my instrument case with the world weariness that only a teenager can know. And of course, I didn't feel the need then to customize my uniform because I had a far loftier ideal. I was keeping music live. <laughs> Though, of course, in the early days, certainly of junior orchestra, it was less about um, keeping music live, more about killing it slowly and painfully. And concert renditions were sort of were awful. Um, it was the audience of our parents alternately wincing and bravely smiling as we tortured the Empire Strikes Back theme. Um, but we moved on, we graduated, and it got better. And we started playing Mozart and Rachmaninoff, and people started coming to concerts actually to enjoy them. I g- guess the exception was choir. Choir had a sort of open-door policy. It was more about um, c- uh, communication and involvement and enthusiasm than musicality and in fact some of the keenest members of the choir couldn't hold a tune at all but they did provide a sort of drone like a bagpipe Um, you know. and I still remember now in our rehearsal rooms there was a big poster with sort of cartoon animals singing serenely from hymn sheets and they were conducted by a sort of hippo in spectacles and the words at the top of the poster were sort of Music hath charms to soothe the savage beast Not in our choir, I'm telling you that. Um, I I just saw it as a really handy way of getting out of hockey, if I'm honest. Um, But then I passed an audition to join the Kent Youth Choir, and um, that was a totally different matter. These people could sing, and it was really serious. We had all-day rehearsals, we had concerts in proper venues, and that first summer... We went on tour to France, and we were singing in cathedrals and fantastic churches, and it was amazing, you know, bouncing our voices around these vaulted ceilings and, you know, hearing, your, hearing the harmonies just hang in the cool, dark air of churches. It was just brilliant. It was a real buzz. Um, and I just remember there was one evening. I think we'd been on some sort of cultural improvement tour, probably to Versailles, I imagine, and we were on um, the Paris Metro coming back into town to our hostel, and uh, it was a rush hour train and we were bored and fidgety, lolling, packed in with the commuters. And suddenly my choir master leant down and I saw him whisper something in the ear of one of the tenors. And the whisper got passed around all of us. And it came to me and somebody said, we're going to sing, we're going to sing, hail gladdening light. Hail gladdening light, which is an extraordinary sort of lush, spine chilling evening anthem by Charles Wood. Um, there was a bass called Julian who had perfect pitch. He very quietly hummed a note, with a flick of the finger, we burst into song, and the whole carriage just went up with glorious choral music. Now, I recognise that probably sounds horrific, it's sort of like something that would happen in glee. <laughs> but <laughs> for whatever reason, it wasn't. I don't know whether it was because of the sort of the clear purity of our youthful voices, or the fantastic harmonies, or the absolute unexpectedness of it... Um, But at the end, with the last chord ringing around the carriage, uh, the whole place just burst into applause. And when I looked round, um, there were people crying. uh, And it was actually very moving. Um, And they were so enthusiastic that we carried on. This impromptu concert hurtling under the streets of Paris in this sealed metro carriage. And, you know, we'd stop at stations and people would get on and swap carriages to join us. And, And other people missed their stops to stay with us. And at the end of the tour, you know, we'd sung in some amazing places. We'd done Chartres and Notre Dame and tour. But the concert that remains with me to this day, the one that still sends the sort of chills up my spine, was that one in the metro carriage. Um, and I think the reason why is that in that moment, we were absolutely united. The listeners, um, the singers, we were one. Because it was so unexpected. It was so unique And it wasn't organised, there was no ticketing, there was no expectation, it wasn't a flash mob, it was just a thing that happened. And I think for that reason we sort of touched on that ephemeral magic that is, um, I think, the heartbeat of a real, true live performance and the thing that most performers are desperately chasing but so rarely capture because I think the minute you consciously know about it and you try to catch it, it like sort of Brigadoon, it disappears into the mist, it goes away. Um, and for me, I know you know the Musicians' Union, Keep Music Live, was a very famous campaign, and it was actually all about stopping recorded music taking over from orchestras. But to me, um, it will always and forever actually mean that spark that breathes life into a performance that makes it live and makes it absolutely unforgettable for everybody involved. Thank you.
1: Prince Mark everybody, right? Okay, so our next story of union is from Glennis Newton. So put your hands together for (laughs) Glennis
2: Up until not so many years ago, there were still wild ponies running in the mountains in Wales. And every year some of these ponies would be rounded up a few sent to the slaughterhouse, and some bought by people up and down England and Wales, by families and riding stables who would try and often fail to tame these little wild spirits. I was ten years old, and Hannah, the owner of the riding stables in North Essex, where I spent my every spare waking hour, had bought one of these ponies. A green horse box arrived in the yard. The ramp came down and out came Cuckoo. It was love at first sight. Cuckoo was a typical Welsh mountain pony, which is small, white, with tail held high, and naughty, very naughty. He was put out in the field, whereupon he refused to be caught again. I would go and sit with a bucket of food and a book and read him stories, hour after hour, day after day, and week after week until eventually he came closer and would eat the food from the bucket. He needed time to know who he could trust. And I knew what that meant. Eventually, I was the only person that could catch Cuckoo, and I was certainly the only person who was stupid enough to get on him. Cuckoo didn't arrive with the name Cuckoo. He got the name Cuckoo because he was mad, He had no brakes, and the only way to stop him was to point him towards a fence or a hedge or a wall so that you were going slightly slower when you fell off. (laughs) There is something deeply humiliating about walking around the country lanes with riding boots, a jobbers, and a hat, and no horse. (laughs) It soon became clear that Cooker was never going to be riding school material. To be a riding school pony, they have to be predictable and reliable, and cuckoo was none of these. So Hannah decided to give me cuckoo. It was every little girl's dream, my own pony. My mum and dad said I could have cuckoo, But they would contribute nothing to his upkeep, so I used to wash windows and mow lawns and do everything I could and save up and buy a bale of hay or a bag of food. Cuckoo was my soulmate. He was my best friend. Me and Cuckoo went everywhere together. And I always wanted to honour his wild beginnings, so I'd never put a head collar on him. I'd say, he's free to go, if he so wish. If he loves me, he'll stay. If not, he's free to go, which he often did. <laughs> we went everywhere together. And on those rare and wonderful occasions when the family were all out... I would take him through the patio doors into the sitting room where we'd eat chocolate spread sandwiches and watch the telly. (laughs) My family, you see, they didn't understand. They thought Cuckoo was just a horse. They didn't understand that he was my best mate. So one Christmas morning, I had it all planned. I bought Cuckoo a Christmas present, wrapped it up and put it under the tree. And my plan was to go and get him, bringing him into the sitting room so that he could open his present along with everybody else. And that way the family would have to accept him as a fully blown member of the family. Brilliant plan. So I snuck out in the early hours of the morning. I went up the hill, past the church, and I went and got Cuckoo. Without a head collar... He followed me with his nose in the small of my back, down the hill. And then Cuckoo did what Cuckoo does best, which is bugger off. (laughs) With his tail held high, he cantered down past the church and up somebody's drive, across their garden, sending clods of manicured lawn up into the crisp Christmas morning air. And in their garden, they had a swimming pool covered with green tarpaulin, which to cuckoo must have looked like the grass. So he cantered across it, the tarpaulin ripped, and he went into the swimming pool. Most people I am led to believe if they're not using this swimming pool, they empty it, but these people didn't. Me, in duffel coat and wellies, ran and jumped into the pool after Cuckoo. It was his first swimming experience and and it wasn't going well. I was holding him up and the family, the couple, they came out hearing these unusual splashings coming from their garden And the wife, she had the good sense to bring with her a pair of kitchen scissors, so I dove down and cut the tarpaulin away from round his legs and pushed him up the shallow end. Word had quickly spread around the village, and people had abandoned their Christmas present opening for the more exciting scene going on up at the swimming pool. And as me and Cuckoo stood shivering at the shallow end, everybody tried to work out how to get a horse out of a swimming pool, which is not easy. Someone came up with a bright idea of getting straw bales and making steps for him to get out of the pool. So a farmer went off with his tractor, came back with the straw bales, chucked them in the pool, whereupon they floated... Because it actually takes about two months for water to soak into a straw bale. (laughs) And we didn't have that long. Someone else came up with a bright idea that people should stand on either end of the straw bales to keep them stable. While I ran up and down the straw bales saying, come on cuckoo. And every time he put his hoof on the straw bale, it unbalanced them and everybody fell into the swimming pool and it was getting quite busy in there. (laughs) Eventually, he'd clearly had enough, and he took a leap of faith and ran up the straw bales, and people wrapped us in bath towels. I never did get to take Cuckoo into the front room to open his Christmas present that day. But I did take his present up to the stable, and we snuggled under the rugs and the straw. It was, it was a hoof pick, by the way. <laughs> Me and Cuckoo, we went on to have many, many adventures. And although he's long gone now, he still holds a very special place in my heart. And I still, 40 years later, I still go to the same riding stables, still owned by Hannah. I still go every week. And I still, if I'm perfectly honest, cannot actually see what is wrong with bringing a horse into the house.
1: Right so the union between humans and animals there so we're really we're really going to go and find all sorts of stories tonight about union um well, what we're going to do now is oh I should say as well Glenis found out about uh, a spark in a in a roundabout way really kind of through the fact that we've got a spin-off going on in Preston that's right isn't it is that is that right yeah so um and the next uh, night in Preston uh for podcast listeners uh is on the 6th of December so yeah am I right about that Good. it's always good to be right isn't it one size
2: fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes
1: nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt
2: until you tried it on same goes for your health
1: Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So we're going to have one last story in this section. Uh, and that story is going to be from somebody who uh, amazed us at uh, the Hackney uh, branch, which I run, the, uh, the, the open mic we did there earlier, earlier this month. So put your hands together, everybody, for Simon Sarginson.
3: So when I was six years old, I was very proud of my unique talent, which was I could board a plane on my own, unsupervised. Sure, there was a stewardess, and she would hand me a colouring book, but I was still cool, you know. So cool, in fact, that when I was invited to the cockpit, I just casually pressed a random button. As you can see, the results of that were fortunate. The reason why I was on a plane quite a lot from that age was I would visit my dad, In England. I was from Holland. I was living there with my mum. And I would visit my dad in various cities in the UK, such as Manchester, Woking, Lansing, my favourite, near Brighton. And um, for a few weeks a year, I would spend time with him. And I was spellbound by my dad. My dad was very funny. He had a good computer. And I would rent videos and video games. And we would talk and we'd philosophise. And I would listen to BBC radio plays, which I found fascinating, even though I didn't quite understand them. And, um, yeah, we had shared interests. We both really liked Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So he named his home computer network uh, BTVS, in memory of that. So uh, a little while later, when I was 12 years old, he moved to Holland. And he moved to Holland to be closer to me, but also to get away from wherever he was living at the moment because as, as I was about to find out, my dad, he burned a lot of bridges. And uh, at first everything was fine. I visited him once a week and it was good, we had fun. And then suddenly he had his first relapse into drinking that I witnessed. And suddenly I wouldn't go and visit him and he would be very difficult on the phone and via email. And my incredibly well-spoken dad would start making spelling mistakes in emails. He would start slurring through words. All through this, uh, my mum, who was always supportive of our relationship, uh, would keep in touch with him, try to make sure he was all right. And even though they would never be together again, uh, there was still a special bond between them. So much so that when my dad got really bad, uh, my mum took my dad in. And this was no small feat by any means. One, we're we're living in a shared living home, which means that lots of people share things, but somehow that doesn't automatically translate into being very charitable. So there was some tension there. She was living with her boyfriend at the time, a man I consider my stepdad and I still see to this day, and he was very big in letting him stay, although I'm sure there were some awkward moments. I was shielded from. Uh, But most importantly, my mum was having her own struggles. She was suffering uh, from cancer and had her ups and downs. But still, my dad stayed in our attic, and he went through full-blown withdrawal. And he had a psychotic episode while he was in our attic. And he would explain things to me like that my stepdad had planted optical illusions around the house to confuse him secretly in the night. And that sometimes when he was looking at the wall, he would see insects crawling. Much, much, much later, I I learned that these are classic signs of alcohol poisoning. He got out of that. He moved away and he got sober and eventually he settled in Rotterdam. And fate had a sense of irony, it seemed, because now fully sober, he was living above a, a brewery storage facility and we had big vats of beer rolling down the street day in, day out. And even the floor pitched to one side, so as you crossed the apartment, you kind of swaggered a little bit, appropriately. And uh, I had a lot of good times there. I really loved the place. Um, he would treat me uh, to whipped cream-flavored dessert with extra whipped cream, which is amazing. Everybody should try that. And I watched lots of movies, and he tinkered with his home networks, and he would install operating systems with mascots in the form of the penguins, and the little devils, and salamanders. and. Bonus points for anyone in the audience who knows which version of Linux that is. Anybody? No, I didn't think so. Bunch of losers. (laughs) And um, yeah, so I had a great time there. And then after a while, it happened again. He had another relapse into drinking and I spoke to him less and then it got better. And we never talked about his episodes because I I don't know, I was like 12, 14. I didn't know how to talk about it and he, he was ashamed, I guess. So he got better, and then he got worse, and I stopped talking to him altogether. He was, uh, he was very difficult on the phone, manipulative, he played a victim card, he tried to make me feel bad, and I, I couldn't deal with it. And then I remember, I remember sitting on the couch, reading Love Hina, which is an anime comic, um, mostly about some dropout student getting kicked in the face by six beautiful girls exposing their panties while they do it. I was 15, (laughs) and my mom was lying in the living room in a hospital bed because she was very ill at the time, and even though my mom was very ill and wasn't able to do it, she still found it in her heart, amazing woman she was, to send out one of her very good friends to look out for my dad, and she came at this moment bursting through the door, and she said, Simon, Simon, we, we had to break the door down, we found your dad he's dead I know I know this could have happened I, I even said it out loud in a moment of frustration in the school hallway I was I was dazed and in a haze I remember I remember going to see his body which is which is a strange experience this kind of like this wax version of this person you knew, so familiar yet so strange, and you discovered that the essential part of him was missing because that muscle tension in the face, how it shapes when it's even when it's neutral, when it's sleeping, this character manifests itself physically, and that part was gone. This piece of me had nothing to do with my dad anymore, and that was that was very sad a little while after that, I had to make a very difficult decision. I could either go and see my dad's place as he left it, and see what kind of conditions he was living under, or I could not go and never know. I decided to go, and I've never been more scared of a place in my life, a place I loved so well, so many good times, memories. I remember standing in front of the door, and opening it and immediately the bad smell hit me. It was like decay and rotting, except old. Like dust had settled over it and even the bacteria had left. Although I was I'm sure that wasn't even remotely true. So I went through and I had a plan. My plan was I was gonna go through every single room and not have there being a known place in this house. So I started with a back room where he kept all his computers. That was too bad, a few trash bags here and there. And then at the end of the hall, there was the room I was really scared of, and that was the bathroom. Um, I forced myself to open that door and to look in the bathtub and see the toilet, and it was absolutely disgusting. Muck everywhere. I didn't peer in much deeper. I got out of there. And then I went to the living room, the living room where he had his desk set up and he would sit at his computer, while I was playing Final Fantasy 9 on the PlayStation I brought for the TV there. And now the corner was just piled up with rubbish. And empty fast food containers. And you could see that my dad was a despair drinker. He wasn't like somebody who got into really good wine and kind of overindulged. He was completely agnostic. It was gin, whiskey, wine, beer, even Bacardi Breezers. God's sake. That's my drink, Dad. And... So I went through there, and then I came to the dining hall. And the dining hall was my uncle from my mother's side and his wife. And they had plastic gloves on, and they were sorting through papers. And my uncle, he looked at me, and he said, here, have some gloves, help us sort out some stuff, make yourself useful. And I was stunned. I I really didn't know what to make of that moment. I mean, the last thing I wanted to do is sort out my dad's paperwork. And I really didn't know what to make of this moment. But more importantly, much more importantly than that, he was there. You know, he had liked my dad very well, but he wasn't related to him. He was doing it for me. And much later, he would also arrange for his funeral. So hot and so cold at the same time. Very strange. I sat down. I sorted through the papers. And I got out of there, I left. I never saw the place again. A couple of months later, unfortunately, my mum died of cancer as well. I won't really go into that here. She deserves her own story, one which I've told at a previous spark night. But um, suffice to say, it was a difficult time. But looking back at it, I'm I'm really glad I went into that room because I have dreams of my dad but they're not really nightmares. They're not really good dreams either. But I've stared my dad's demons in the eyes and I know what despair looks like and it doesn't hide in the shadows anymore. I want to leave you with a bit that my dad wrote. A bit that he wrote while he was depressed which shows his weakness as well as his strength. A to-do list. Bath. Shave. Sort Simon's computer out. That is, screw it together, put any CDs, etc., in a bag, and put stickies on it all. Buy some traveler's checks. Phone the post office to see whether they have any. Find out the most painless route to England. Put 700 euros in Simon's account if you manage to find out what his account number is. Cheer up. Remember, these are the last few days of your life. Remember, you are a mess, but you were born innocent. I suggest you start with a bath. Thank you. Simon
1: Sarginson, everybody. Well, thank you to all of our storytellers tonight. Uh, we've had Simon Sarginson, we've had Catherine Seamark, and we've had Glenis Newton. Put your hands together for all of those people now. Uh, So thank you all for coming, and see you again soon.
3: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.